I previously mentioned that my attitude to nature is far removed from that of my ancestor, the first Baron Munchausen. I am all for conservation, whereas he considered it unmanly not to massacre a flock of beautiful birds or a family of intelligent primates when he met them. Another difference between us is that I am favoured with greater powers of oratory than he ever possessed. He happened to be in Paris in the early days of the French Revolution, and being besotted with the Queen, Marie Antoinette, he made a very antagonistic speech to the National Assembly, which led to a riot and his having to defend the royal family against several hundred irate fishwives. He only narrowly avoided ending up, as his royal charges later did, under the blade of the guillotine. I, on the other hand, on my transatlantic journey on a cruise ship, used my rhetorical skills to deliver lectures to packed and appreciative audiences. My series on presidents, prime ministers, monarchs and oligarchs who have known me was so popular that I was instantly offered a book contract by a New York publisher who was on board. His only stipulation was that I should include my thoughts on the present incumbent of the White House. I refused, on the grounds that I had never met the man. The publisher suggested I just make something up, since, he said with a wily gleam in his eye, it was obvious that I made most things up. This slur so enraged me that I tore the contract into pieces in front of him and ate it. If only I had known what would transpire before the week was out. The cruise ship, which I should say is the largest ever constructed, having 24 decks, 5,000 cabins and 37 swimming pools, stopped in Bermuda, the Bahamas and numerous other Caribbean islands before reaching Miami in January. My disembarkation was accompanied by the ship's orchestra playing Handel's See the Conquering Hero Comes and loud cheers from the happy passengers. I am very glad that I left the vessel when I did, for within a few weeks it became a kind of plague ship, full of people sick with coronavirus and unwelcome in almost every port. I doubt, in the light of subsequent events, that that enormous vessel, the Titanic of our times, will sail again. In Florida I joined a touring expedition to the Everglades, as I was keen to see some of the remarkable wildlife there. I enjoyed observing snakes, lizards, turtles, frogs, and great numbers of wading birds, but my pleasure was marred by the noisy behaviour of some of my companions. One afternoon I wandered some distance from the party in search of a little peace, and was rewarded by the sight of numerous roseate spoonbills feeding in the shallow swampy water. In order to see these magnificent birds at close range, I carefully stepped across some stones protruding from the water. I was balancing on one of these stones when suddenly it rose up, revealing itself to be the head of a medium-sized alligator. The beast tossed me in the air and opened its jaws wide to receive me. I was certain that being swallowed by an alligator would have a far less pleasant outcome than my recent sojourn in the belly of a whale 
and so with great agility I landed on one foot on its nose and sprang to the next stone. This, too, I discovered to be an alligator, bigger than the first. Again I was tossed skyward, and again I managed to avoid the creature's open mouth and hop to the next stone. To my dismay, I realised I was at one end of a line of alligators, each one larger than its neighbour, stretching far into the distance, and that one faulty step would result in my becoming a takeaway dinner. I hopped and skipped from one alligator to the next, an exercise that was simultaneously thrilling and exhausting, for one hundred and seventy-six alligators. When I reached the last and biggest of them all, who was sunbathing on a muddy bank, I was so relieved to see dryish land that I misjudged my hop and put my foot straight into his mouth. By good fortune, although he was nearly twenty feet long, he was also very old and had no teeth left. I punched him on the snout, extracted my leg, and set off at a brisk canter, keen to put as much distance between myself and his relatives as possible. I did not stop until I had climbed several fences, crossed two roads, and was in the western outskirts of Fort Lauderdale. I wish no harm to alligators, but if I have to be eaten by an animal, I would rather it were one that did not suffer from such repellent halitosis. After this escapade, I booked myself into a luxurious hotel in Palm Beach, which I could well afford, as I had been paid an excellent fee for my lectures. I was required on registering to show some identification. I produced the British passport, which Her Majesty the Queen had herself signed and presented to me. I thought no more about this at the time, but word must have leaked out, for a few days later a gentleman approached me while I was having lunch. He understood that I was a descendant of the famous Baron Munchausen, and that I, too, had had many adventures, some so extraordinary that they were scarcely credible. I said that he understood correctly, adding that anything he might hear from my own lips, however incredible, would be nothing but the truth. He then revealed to me the purpose of his visit. I represent he said, the President of the United States, who also suffers from being disbelieved by nasty bad people, is interested in comparing his experience with yours. He therefore invites you to play a round of golf with him at his private club, which happens to be only a few minutes' drive from here. Of course, I was not going to pass up such an opportunity. I accepted the President's invitation, but explained that I was traveling without golfing equipment. I was told that this would not be a problem and that a car would collect me the following morning. Although I had not played golf for years, I did not demean myself by rushing off to put in a practice round. The next day I was taken to the President's Club, where I was kitted out and loaned a set of clubs. I was also assigned a caddy, who would carry the clubs and advise me on the length and obstacles of each hole. The caddy asked what my handicap was. I said that I did not have one. He told me that the President played off three 
but so that I would not be disadvantaged, handicaps would not be taken into account. I was fairly sure that this was not how the handicap system worked, but I did not object. Before we teed off, I was introduced to the President in the locker room. I anticipated some locker room banter, but thankfully none was forthcoming. The President shook hands with me and the caddies and with the security men who would accompany us on our round. He was a great believer in shaking hands, he said, not addressing anyone in particular. When he shook hands with somebody, he knew right away if he could do a deal with them. It was an alpha thing, and not everybody had it, but he did. Then he turned to me and said, We're going to have a great game, an incredible game. They told me you're a friend of the Queen of England, Mr. Monkey House. They told me she personally signed your passport. Uh, Munchausen, I said. I have met the Queen, yes. She's a big fan of mine, he said. We got along great when I was over there. I like that she signed your passport. I personally signed a copy of one of my books and gave it to her. No charge. I hope she reads it. She might learn a thing or two. We began our round. I soon realized that my opponent did not like to lose, and that I was up against not only him, but also the two caddies. After five holes, I was three up. At the sixth, the president drove his ball into the rough, but astonishingly, it was found to have bounced off a tree and finished in a nice spot on the edge of the fairway. I was sure that my shot to the green had landed just a few feet from the pin, but when I arrived, the president's caddy said that my ball had unluckily hit the flagpole and rolled into a steep-sided bunker. Ah, from then on, the game was nothing but bad luck for me, not helped by some misleading recommendations from my caddy, and good luck for the president, including several more shots that I could have sworn had gone out of bounds or into water hazards, but which by some miracle ended up in very favourable positions. We were all square at the 18th, but he beat me with his final putt. Well, Mr. Monkey House, the President said, you're a loser, but that's not your fault. Nobody ever beats me, not unless they cheat. You're probably not very popular either. He went on to explain that he was tremendously popular and asked if I tweeted. He tweeted? Nobody tweeted more than he did. He suggested that tweeting would improve my ratings, but that I shouldn't tweet too much and definitely not as much as he did. He had heard that I told a lot of incredible stories, but nobody told more incredible stories than he did, and his were all true. Now I have to go, he said, shaking my hand again, because the press are waiting for me to talk to them. Come and watch if you like. You might learn something, like the Queen. I was not impressed by the President of the United States. Frankly, I did not believe one-tenth of what came out of his mouth. While he was giving his press conference, I went for a walk. At the rear of the building, I came upon a man in orange overalls who was filling a large gas bottle from a tube attached to a ventilation outlet. He had a pickup parked nearby, with several more gas bottles standing in the back. Having assured him that I was not a security guard, I asked what he was doing. He told me that he regularly filled his containers with the gas produced at the President's press conferences, and that the tube was connected to the room where he was then speaking. And what do you use the gas for? I asked. 
All kinds of things, he said. Barbecues, stoves, hot air balloons. Oh, there's no fuel like it. One of these bottles will last for ages. Well, I've always wanted to travel in a hot air balloon, I said. Where could I hire one that uses your wonderful gas? You can hire one from me if you have the right credentials, the man in orange overalls replied. I showed him my passport and my wallet full of banknotes, and he at once offered to drive me to my hotel and take me from there to his depot. I agreed. We departed as soon as the final bottle was full of presidential gas, and a few hours later I was in a very well-equipped basket beneath a large red balloon, rising from the ground on the next stage of my adventures. But what happened on this voyage will have to wait for another time. <laughs>